looking at Galatians 3, starting in verse 19, and read to the end of the chapter. We'll pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our Lord and our God, as we open your, your book, I just pray that you shed on us the, some wisdom, discernment, guidance from your word here, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit enlighten us. I pray that the words I use are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 3, starting in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guard, a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You may be seated. Again, we're still hanging around this third chapter of Galatians, and I think, I think this will be it. You know, the title of this sermon is No Division, No Separation. If you're here last week, remember the word that I used, monolithic, where the walls and the floor were poured in unity at one. And I use that to refer to the law and the gospel. It's a monolithic union between the two. Different uses, just like a floor you use to walk on, and the walls are for vertical structure. The law has a different use than the gospel, but they are so knit together and tied together, you cannot separate them. You cannot divide them. If you would divide and break them, the gospel would be weakened and the law would be weakened. 
I don't like being critical, but the pastors who say just preach the gospel, they are robbing people of the full counsel of God. And it's unfair to the people. The law plays a part in the redemption of mankind. You cannot remove it. It plays a part in the redemption of mankind. Now I know we're saved by grace and grace alone. But the law is that anvil that guides us to Christ, the schoolmaster. It pushes us to the need of the Savior. It says in verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Do you see how the law is the guardian that comes before faith? That we might be justified by faith. The law steers us in the direction of faith. This was taught by Calvin, by Luther, by Augusta, by the pastors of Magdeburg, and by Christ himself. Remember, I also said, Calvin said that the law is like a mirror. A mirror. It reflects God to us. It gives us God's character, his attributes. A perfect image of Christ. And it also reflects a perfect image of ourselves without any makeup, without any clothes on, without any coverings, no facades. And it shows us how sinful we are compared to God. Now in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion had a major effect of spreading Christianity at that time. I have a long quote here. I'm going to work through it. Sometimes you get to reading some of these wiser Christians than me. It's hard not to use their words. Chapter 2 of the first part of his Institutes, it says, On the other hand, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such a contemplation to look into himself. Such is our innate pride. We always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also. He being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. For since we are all naturally prone to hypocrisy, any empty semblance of righteousness is quite enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. But he's saying, if we compare ourselves to each other, we say, oh, I'm more righteous than that guy, I'm more righteous than them. But 
we should be comparing ourselves to God. That is righteousness itself, the heart of righteousness. Back to the quote. And since nothing appears within us or around us that is not tainted with very great impurity, so long as we keep our mind with our, within the confines of human pollution, anything which is in some small degree less defiled delights us as if we were most pure, just as an eye to which nothing but black had been previously presented deems an object of whitish or even brownish hue to be perfectly white. So what he was saying, we're swimming in a polluted culture, and we, you know, obviously today, we see around us. So if we compare ourselves to other polluted beings, and we say, well, I'm not as polluted as that guy, it doesn't mean we're not polluted. He says we can't just look at our surroundings. Nay, the bodily sense may furnish a still stronger illustration of the extent in which we are deluded and estimating the powers of the mind. And he says, if by at midday we either look down to the ground or on the surrounding objects which lie open to our view, we think ourselves endued with, endowed, I guess, with very strong and piercing eyesight. Again, when we look humanly around us, we can say, yeah, I see things clearly. We're pretty good. He says, but when we look up to the sun and gaze at it unveiled, the sight which did excellently well for the earth is instantly so dazzlingly and confounded by the influence as to oblige us to confess that our acuteness in discerning terrestrial objects is mere dimness when applied to the sun. This too, it happens in estimating our spiritual qualities. So long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with even our righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demigods. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being he is and how absolute the perfections of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed, what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity but strangely imposed upon us under the name of wisdom will disgust us by its extreme folly, and what presented an appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. So far as those qualities in us which seem most perfect from corresponding to the divine purity. Calvin knew and understood that mirror. And when we see the perfection of God, the attributes of God, when the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes to gaze upon the face of God, we never look at ourselves again as if we are pure, righteous, and perfect. 
because God is reflecting His law so clearly to us that we know we're sinners. We understand that according to the magnificence of God's God's divine wisdom, His divine law, our standards fall so far short that pride should never, never enter our hearts. Where do we find the standards of God? It's in His law. It's a perfect reflection of Himself. It's not a plan B that the law was given. The law was given for clarity. The law was given for all times. It's so that we see the character of God and it reveals to us our own sinfulness and the need for a Savior. But the law plays a part in the redemption of man's souls. It is the anvil that we are broken on and led to salvation. So let's carry this a little further. Let's say there's a man, somebody rightfully shares the law of God with him and the gospel message, and the Holy Spirit reveals to this man that he needs a Savior, that he's a sinner, and he's miraculously saved. God receives glory. This man wants to serve God. So how is he to complete his commission of making disciples? Is it to go and just say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? No, it's the same thing how, what saved him. Sharing the word of God, the laws of God, Convicting the person that they need a Savior. As you tell somebody, oh, God loves you, and uh, he has a wonderful plan for your life, you could say, well, i got a wonderful plan for my life, and it's going good, and if all I have to do is say this little prayer, I can keep going on with my life. You end up with false converts. But if the law has broken them and brought them to the point where they fall to their knees, and it is a mirror that reflects how guilty they are, they will seek out God because they know they need a Savior. They cannot find righteousness in themselves. Now let's carry it even a little further. This guy, he's gloriously saved, and he gets married. So now he's went from self-government into family government. How is he going to teach his family of the things of God? Is he going to say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and lets the kids do whatever they want, whenever they want? No, he's going to use the law of God and teach the children to obey their parents. Stealing is wrong. Theft is wrong. He'll teach his children to go to church, to tithe. He'll teach them the law of God. 
And it plays a part in the redemption of those children. And that's what we're told in the Scriptures. Fathers, instruct your children. Bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Teach them to fear God's laws, God's punishment. And, as the Magdeburg Confession so clearly states, each one of these governments is set up with authority. There's people under that authority, and the one in authority has the authority to carry on punishment or sanctions. And that is exactly how the Christian family is to work. We teach them God's law. If they break God's law, we teach them through discipline that they've done something wrong. And we also teach them that they've not only wronged the parents, they've wronged God. That's why when you have children brought up in a Christian family, they are more likely to follow on and become Christians because they have that blessing. It's no guarantee. Some of the best families in the world can raise up children the best they can and they can become wretches. But it's more likely if they're brought up under God's law, that monolithic union between the law and the gospel, the faith will be passed on. Now as this family guy matures in his church, he decides he's called to the ministry and he becomes the ministry minister. So now, how is he to minister in the church? You know, his role has changed. Again, from self-government, family government, now he's got family government and church government. But that monolithic union between the law and the gospel has not changed. That standard is still set. So now when he becomes a shepherd in the church, that is his duty, to teach the whole counsel of God, the law of God, to the congregation, that they can teach their family, they can share the faith, that, yeah, you're a lawbreaker in need of a Savior. It's the same thing. As the individual and the family, you can't change it. And also, because God has ordained the elders in a church with authority, they have rulership over the people. And when there are sinners who will not repent, there are sanctions. First they go to the person, try to work it out. And then they forbid them to take communion if they do not repent which is an open rebuke the whole congregation is to notice. And if they still won't repent, then there is excommunication. But that is a loving act. It's pointing the person, you're a lawbreaker, you're going against God's law, they should come under the conviction of God and say, we can punish you, but you should be more afraid of God's punishment because you're a lawbreaker. So the law is used Again, to break the hearts of men. But again, there will be some who will rebel and they will not change. 
Okay, now this guy, he's real ambitious. He's a pastor, a father, a Christian. And he's so sick of the politicians, he decides to run the office. And he becomes a senator. Let's say, whether a state senator or federal senator, I don't know. But is he under God's authority, God's law, God's rule? Now he's a civil magistrate. Let's just look at Romans 13 for a second. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay, now I've heard people say, there it is, right there. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words. We have to obey whatever the government says. That's a bunch of baloney. You know when people tell me that? I tell them, why don't you read the first ten sentences and use your brain. It says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whatever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, is a civil magistrate given authority from God? Yeah, he's definitely given authority from God. And again, you could say there's four governments or three, individual, family, church, and civil. Christianity has recognized that. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for the authority, there's no authority except from God. That's pretty clear in my mind. Those that have been instituted by God, they've been instituted by God. They repeat it twice. Two witnesses. So is the civil magistrate still under God's law? Can he break that monolithic union and say the law doesn't matter now in his life? God's law doesn't matter because he's a civil magistrate. He can go against God's law. Well, it says, verse 3, Do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's what? He's God's servant. For your good. Later on it says, For he is the servant of God. The avenger who carries out whose wrath? God's wrath. So if God's wrath is coming down against people who are punished by the civil authorities, they're breaking God's laws. He's a servant of God. And his laws and the laws of a nation should and must mirror the laws of God. Otherwise, they're tyrants. You know, these three governments 
are monolithically joined. In that they all are servants of God. But they're distinct because they all have different roles to play, different authority figures who rule over other people. The family rules over their children and the family. The church over the congregation. The civil authorities over society, but they're all God's servants. Why should they reflect the laws of God? Because what were the laws for in 1 Timothy 1.8? Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Notice the law of God is to keep lawbreakers in check. Family law. Again, what happens? Children are punished if they disobey. They should be. Church law, sanctions against those who are openly sinning and will not repent. In the government, it should be the same thing. It should be a reflection of God's law. And it's the duty of each and every believer not only to preach the gospel, because when you preach and you tell and you try to get the laws of God into society, into the nation, you're doing the redemptive work which God commands us to do. It's part of sharing the gospel. We must do both. That monolithic union between law and gospel must be carried out in all aspects of life. You know, we're studying eschatology that things will get better and better. That is when things get better and better. When all these forms of government fall under the leadership of Jesus Christ and his law. Now I know even when the laws are taught properly, there will always be lawbreakers. Whether in the family, the church, the civil. But the thing is, when the law is in place, they will be aware that they are going against society, the family, or the church. They will be aware that they are lawbreakers, which is what will perhaps in time bring them to faith, to fear the laws of God. But it must be told to them, not only are they breaking the family rules or the church rules or the civil rules, it must be that they're breaking God's rule. That union cannot be separated. And when you have civil law reflecting, being a mirror of God's law, it is a blessing. 
because it is the evildoers who are sanctioned. See, the primary goal is to bring people to faith. But like the Magdeburg people who wrote the confession, they said there's a secondary thing concerning it. When you have good laws, which are under God, God's laws, ruling a society, it's good for society. Even if not everybody becomes a believer because the murderers, the burglars are removed from society. They're punished. They're, they know that they're lawbreakers and they're sanctions. If they get caught, they get punished. And just the opposite, though. If a family, a church, or the civil government has bad laws in their family, bad laws in their church, or bad laws in society, the evil doers have arraigned the sin and they're not convinced of their need for a Savior. The revelatory working of the law is lost in their lives. Now, I know when I was young, it's a long time ago now, but uh, I loved cookie dough. I loved chocolate chip cookie dough, especially. And we had one of those houses that was just great for snitching cookie dough because it went around kind of, you know, you could go here and come back. And... Now, when my mom made cookie dough, she'd say, don't eat the cookie dough. But, you know, you'd go and grab some more, and she'd say, well, don't eat the cookie dough. There was really no sanction. So, and all you little kids don't eat the cookie dough. Just listen to your parents. I was naughty. I'd just keep eating the cookie dough. Because there was the law in place, but the law was not being kept. Or it wasn't being kept by me, but there was no sanction against the law. Now, when my sisters, my older sisters, made cookies, and it, particularly if it was for a party or something, they were going to take them to. And they said, don't steal the cookie dough. I had to be a lot more careful. Because over time, they realized, you know, I was faster than them. So they'd leave the kitchen. I'd sneak around from the office, steal the cookie dough. And when I'd hear them coming, I could go. And if I heard them scream, you know, if I, they always put a cover on it. I guess that's so it doesn't dry off. If I rattled that cover, you're stealing the cookie dough, and they'd come running in the kitchen, I could make it to the front door. And, but they decided after a while that it paid that they were kind of a tag team match. One would guard the front door, and one would come around, and as Sarah would say, I was toast. And let's just say they had a lot more uh, hands-on discipline than my mom. So because there was a sanction when they made the cookies, guess what? There's a revelation in my heart that it's not worth trying to steal the cookie dough now. But do you see all that is? If, the, if you have a law and it's never kept, if you tell a kid, don't do this, don't do this, and you never, well, discipline them, they're going to keep doing it. Now the same thing is in the church. If the church doesn't enforce the laws of God, 
or if they just kind of ignore him, say God is love and let whatever fly. The sinners are not revealed that they need a Savior. And worse yet, if they accept bad laws, more and more sin comes into the church because there are not sanctions. And there isn't that revelationary work of the law working on people's hearts. It drives me crazy when they go, oh, well, God is love. That's all we got to do is say, God is love. Well, God's a consuming fire. Which one do you want to go with? He's both. Now, what happens in civil government when it refuses to enforce the laws in place or passes bad law? Well, the bad law, we can see how homosexuality and abortion is running rampant in our nation. But what about the laws that are not enforced? I'm sure everybody's here seen the pictures on the news, particularly out west or Chicago, where these people just ransacking stores. And the police don't even step in. That's where they're ignoring, enforcing no sanction of the law. But it's not doing these criminals any favor. They're getting bolder and bolder. Retail theft, they call it shrinkage. It's so bad in some areas, they close stores. And out west, they pass laws that if they don't steal over $950, we're not going to do anything. So it's basically, they're saying that there is no law against stealing $950 worth of mer merchandise. And we see the effects of that. More and more merchandise is stolen. More and more thieves go in. But there's no revelation of the law of God in them to convict them of sin because now the civil magistrate has failed their duty in the part of the law of God which brings people to the knowledge of sin. And worse yet, what's it doing to society? Notice so many of the pharmacies have pulled out of those areas, closed completely, sporting goods stores. They cannot keep up with the thievery. It's not profitable. How many small stores close that we don't hear about? At one time they were interviewing a guy. His store was broken into three times in one week. And the police wouldn't even come. The insurance company said, we're done with you. We won't cover it anymore. Family business closed. 
So society suffers because now the people who aren't the lawbreakers, they have to travel further and further to get their goods and needs met. So do you see how we have the, the revelation of God's law and, God, and the gospel of grace, how that unity is working toward the benefit of mankind. And if it's ignored, the system falls apart. Because it is the law that is the revelation that brings men to Christ, that keeps them in check. And it works. It worked when Calvin was in Geneva. The police didn't know what to do. Because society kept under the laws of God. Not everybody was Christian. But everybody knew if they'd be a lawbreaker, they would be sanctioned, they'd be in trouble, and they'd be shunned by the others. They said in the one week, the only call they had was a lady lost her dog. For the whole city of Geneva, that was the police record for the week. What about America? It worked in early America. When we had the revivals. You know, our roots run deep in Christianity. Listen to what Alex de Tocqueville wrote. He wrote two volumes called Democracy in America. He was a French philosopher, historian, and an atheist. But he came over to study why the United States was striving and becoming so prosperous, prosperous and the French, after the French Revolution, just kept being stagnant and stammering and stumbling. Listen to what he wrote. In America, I sought, I, sought, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her fertile fields, and boundless forests, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her rich minds and in her vast world commerce, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness of genius of America in her public school system and her institutions of learning, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness of the genius of America in her Democrat Congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. He goes on to further explain that it is the Christian religion, the Reformed Calvinistic Christians teaching their children at the family hearth the laws of God which affect all areas of life, which teaches the children to be productive, honest, hardworking, And sharing their faith. And he said that is what is what made America great. It's because they followed the law of God. 
So if anybody tells you the law of God is not important, whether it be a pastor, a politician, or anybody, tell them baloney. Saints, that is where we change the nation. It's how you raise your children. Teaching them the whole counsel of God, the importance of God's laws in all of society. Then we will see Christ's church blossom, and we will see the greatness of America, maybe, or greatness wherever we are. There is no separation. All authority is given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. All politicians, all leaders. And many people, many Christians throughout the ages who confronted these political tyrants lost their heads. But they stood up what was for what was God's law. Let us do the same. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, give us the courage and the wisdom to follow your word and your law and realize there's no separation between it. Amen. Uh, if the deacons would come forward to